Thank you, Mackenzie. Oh, right there. Yeah. Good morning, you guys. It's good to see you. Happy birthday to all of you. You didn't know this. It's your birthday today. Uh, the branch turned six years old today, you guys. Six. It's our birthday. So happy birthday. We're like cute little adorable kindergartners or something. Getting our backpacks on, going to school, going to learn our ABCs this year. It's going to be awesome. So um, happy birthday to you, and uh, we're excited to be six as a church. Um, but guys, this morning, uh, we're beginning a new journey uh, through the letter of 1 Corinthians that was just uh, read for us. I'm like really excited about it. And if you didn't know, you can go out to the Connect area, and you can grab one of these uh, stellar-looking bookmarks that... The late and great David Wienerbacher, who's no longer with us, he didn't die, he's now in Bellingham, Washington, uh, but he designed these for us, we're really grateful for him, but uh, if you get one of these bookmarks, they're super handy, because who doesn't like reading, and uh, you could follow along uh, all the different passages we'll be looking at, leading up till Easter, uh, Advent, different stuff's on there, so check it out, it's going to be great. Um, but this morning, you guys, um, we are beginning this journey, and I'm super, super excited um, I've been planning and honestly thinking about doing this series uh, for like four years, working through this letter, and uh, it just always never feels like the right time, and it really does now. At this point, it feels like the right time, and uh, I'm super excited for it. And there's two reasons, really, um, that I'm excited about First Corinthians. Number one, uh, this letter is very famous, and it's very interesting. It's very famous and very interesting. Uh, it has some of the most quoted and famous scriptures uh, that you know very well. Uh, it also has very famous chapters that are really uh, instructive for us. So like chapter 5 is a famous chapter on church discipline, what that looks like and why it would even exist. You know, Chapter 7 is a famous uh, passage about marriage and singleness. Uh, you have uh, chapters uh, 11 that are read almost every time a church leads out in communion. You have this famous teaching on what the Lord's Supper is. Uh, we have chapters 12 and 14 that are very instructive about spiritual gifts and how to understand them. You have chapter 13, which all of you love because it is the love chapter, right? I mean, it's the one that you used to hear about at every single wedding, and now people are like, eh, I'm not going to do that. Everyone's done that. And so people don't do 1 Corinthians 13 anymore at weddings, but it's the famous love chapter, right? It's so iconic. And then you have the like climactic, most amazing chapter 15 that teaches you all about the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that we have as Christians. And so uh, it's a very uh, famous, just iconic letter. Um, but it also has very interesting sections uh, that you read and you read them and you're like, what the heck is this? Like, how am I supposed to understand this? And so I'm really excited to be able to work through that together and to hopefully better understand how God's word uh, really applies to our lives even today. So that's the first reason. Uh, the second reason, though, is because uh, we live in Corvallis, in the Western Hemisphere, and we are a lot like the people living in Corinth. Um, I know we're saying, hey, this is 2018, um, how can we be like a bunch of unsophisticated people living 2,000 years ago in Greece? But you'll realize the more and more you read this letter that we are a lot like these people and when you read 1 Corinthians, it kind of feels like you're scrolling through your newsfeed at times. You're like, oh, wow, things haven't really changed all that much. And so it's super instructive for us. And so we have like these introductory verses given to us this morning. And so to dive into this, though, I want to do a little bit quick of a background about Corinth and what's going on here, because we need to understand these things as we work through this letter. 
Number one, Paul is the author of this letter, and he has quite the intimate experience with these people. Um, Paul, in fact, has so much experience uh, because he uh, not only visited the people in Corinth, but he actually founded this church. He's like the church planner of Corinth, if you will. And we're told in Acts chapter 18 that Paul spent a year and a half with these people in Corinth. So he knows them very, very well. And they're writing to Paul, asking him questions about certain things. And so Paul will often write back and he'll say, now regarding this or now regarding that. And he's trying to help them out still, even from a distance. So this is Paul um, writing to these people in Corinth and he knows them very well. Now, Corinth uh, was a very interesting and uh, cosmopolitan city, I guess you could say. Um, It was located, I have a map here, I believe, right? Look at that amazing map. I did not create this. But you can see Corinth right there in the middle. It is this uh, beautiful little waterway canal between the east and the west. So it's right there in Greece next to Athens. You can go to the next slide. This is what Corinth looks like even today. Look at that amazing HD pick right there, okay? But nonetheless, you get the idea. This is Corinth. Look at this amazing little waterway right between. I mean, this was how people would transport things from Rome out into the east. And so it was a very prominent, prominent city. Uh, It was a significant uh, trade route through here. So people um, would be traveling through all the time, all the time. Uh, It was a huge center for business and commerce and travel. Like I said, it's a main route uh, for trading. And so this was an optimal place, if you will, uh, to spread the gospel. Because people are coming through here, they get the gospel, they're sent out, they bring the gospel wherever they go. So it's a pretty iconic uh, city, if you will. Corinth uh, was also a Greek city, and the Greeks, we all know this for the most part, they treasured knowledge. They really valued philosophy and education and debate. Uh, They treasured uh, clear and wise-sounding oration, and uh, they, they loved people who could speak well publicly. They would just adore these people. Um, Corinth was also a place, like many prominent trade routes during this time, that highly valued sexual experimentation and freedom. It was kind of the idea of, hey, I'm just traveling through Corinth. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth sort of thing. And so when you're in Corinth especially, uh, you just explore, experiment. Like, who's really going to know? And so you see this really coming into the life of the church as well. And so um, even through some of the things that I've just described, I think it's pretty obvious and clear to us, if you've lived in Corvallis for any length of time, that we are a lot like Corinth. We might not be a bustling urban center, you know, uh, you know a cosmopolitan sort of city or whatnot, but a lot of the same values, especially when it comes to education, um, clear speaking knowledge, Stuff like that. I mean, uh, Corvallis is one of the most highly educated cities in America. Over, I think it's like 60% of people have a bachelor's degree or higher here. It always wins awards for that. Uh, We're a lot like Corinth in that sense. Uh, You know, even the values that we have here in Corvallis and in Oregon as a whole of just kind of freedom, uh, moral freedom to do whatever it is that you want. It's your life, you know, that kind of thinking. Very much would be just in line with what we see in the city of Corinth. And so as you're looking at this letter, and you and I are looking at it uh, beginning today, uh, if we're we're looking at it rightly and soberly enough, uh, we will see that we are much like these people. They're not that much different from us at all, actually. So that's just a little bit of a snapshot of background of Corinth. And this morning, guys, we're looking at the first 17 verses, which Mackenzie read so well for us already. 
And these first 17 verses, they kind of function just like any introduction into a well-written and handcrafted letter. They introduce the main point of the entire letter. And the main point in the entire letter is what you see on the screen behind me. Honestly, it's this. It's, hey, do life together for the glory of Jesus. That's the call of Paul to these people in Corinth, and so therefore it is similarly our call uh, this morning for our own lives. And so to do that, I want us to begin by asking us this question this morning. Here's what I wonder as I've sat in this text this week. I want to know, and I wonder, why did you come to church today? Why do you come to church? Or we could ask maybe a little bit deeper of question, gets to the heart of the matter. Um, what is the use of church? Like, what's its use? What's its use? Now, if you aren't a Christian, I understand that you've probably never thought about that, or do you really care about that question? And honestly, I'm just really glad you're here, and we really hope to be this safe space for you to explore God um, in community. And so um, I understand that you probably haven't thought about that question. But if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, the question is this, what is, what is the use of church? What is its use? And here's the thing. If you answer that question in terms of what the church does for you, then you miss something very crucial. If you begin by answering that question in terms of what the church does for you, you and I have missed something very crucial. And, and naturally, though, that's going to be our response, I would bet. We're going to think of it in terms of what does the church do for me? That's, that's natural to us. Why? Because that's the air we breathe. Every era in time has this big idea that they swim in that really infiltrates and shapes the way they view the world. So in the 18th century, it was liberty. That was like the mantra. That was the big idea. In the 19th century, it was progress, early 20th century as well. And now in the 21st century, late 20th century, uh, the big idea is individualism. It's the era of me. It's me. It's the me era. And this is the air we breathe. It's the air that we breathe in and out. We don't even notice. We like literally have, we don't even notice it. It's crazy. And that's true of air. You never think about the air you're, I doubt this morning you thought about the air you're breathing. I doubt even in this moment you're like thinking about it. The only time you ever think about the air that you're breathing is when the air quality gets really bad. You know, we have like a really bad fire season or something and all of a sudden you start thinking about the air. But other than that, you never think about it. It's air. Why would you think about it? The same is true of the big ideas of our generations and our eras. And ours is the me sort of generation. And so when we think about what is the use of church, we answer it in that way. We, we start with ourselves. But the New Testament answer and the answer of 1 Corinthians to that question, what is the use of the church? It doesn't begin with what the church does for you as much as it begins with what it does for God. What it does for God. What it does for you is definitely addressed, and we definitely are affected by it, and we definitely benefit from it, but only as a result of what it does for God first. And when we begin to understand this and see this, we turn this massive corner from self-centered involvement in the church to a full-blown, God-centered life together for the sake of Jesus. When that shift begins to happen in your life, the church becomes the manifestation of the living Jesus in the world. 
And it's beautiful and powerful. And so this morning, we see in this introductory text that we are called to follow Jesus together. It's a huge key word, together. We are called to follow Jesus together, and we will never truly follow him together until we follow him for his glory and not our own. We are called to follow Jesus together, and we will never truly do that until we follow him for his glory and not our own. And so you can see the roadmap on the screen of where we're headed uh, within these three sections. The vision for Jesus' community, what kills a transcendent community, that's the word I'm using, and then what births a transcendent community. And so first, I want us to see in verses 1 through 3, the vision for Jesus' community. It says, starting in verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So starting in verse 2, we see this simple introductory remark, this salutation, if you want to use a technical term, and we are given Jesus' vision for his community, for his church, for his body here on this earth. It says, to those sanctified, which is the word holy or set apart, you're supposed to be different. Jesus designed us to be different. We're set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. There's that word holy, set apart again. We are called to be saints together. You are set apart together. Not just individually, but together. You, you and I, guys, this is so important. We don't, even, we don't even see it this way because, again, of the air we breathe, we, you and I aren't set apart as an individual person who's meant to stand out in the world. Like, people aren't supposed to look at me and just go, there's something different about you, Josh. There's something different about you, Ethan. Right? There's something different about you, Nani. That's not, that's not the ultimate idea. The idea is that Jesus sets us apart to where others should say in the world, there's something different about you guys and the way that you function together, the way that you do life together. There's something different about you. We are set apart together. Jesus doesn't just call us out and send us out as these like solo people doing our own thing. Jesus didn't save us and then say, have a good life. I'm here if you need me. Uh, hope it goes well. That's not the call of the Christian life. We are set apart together. We aren't just picked out of a crowd as mere individuals who are called to be holy. We have this key word that's massive. It's the word together. Together. Together with whom? Well, it says in the next verse, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Guys, Jesus' vision for his followers is that we are called to do life together with all those in every place. Meaning not just people like you and me. People who see the world differently than you and me. Why? It gives you the answer. Because Jesus isn't just my personal Lord and Savior. He's, he's intimate with me personally, but he's not just my personal God. He's also yours and yours. And, and millions of people uh, uh, that span into different cultures and contexts throughout this world that are currently alive. He's not just my personal God. He is the God of, of a people that he's 
doing something with together. This is the vision of the Christian life. We don't do it alone. We do it together. And if I'm trying to do alone, or if I see Jesus as merely a personal God for me, then I'm following Jesus in a way that the Bible just doesn't have a category for. The Christian life is a together life. That's why we often say uh, we firmly believe that church is not an event. Church is people doing life together. That's what church is. That's what the Bible clarifies it as. And so, man, these first few verses, uh, if we're really looking at them rightly, it unpacks a lot. And if we're being honest, it kind of steps on our toes a little bit. We don't really like, we don't like this stuff, if we're being really honest. I mean, but think about it. No generation in recent memory has talked about the idea of community more fondly than we do. We love talking about it. We, like, love the idea of it. We love the idea of community, but what ends up happening is that we actually end up killing community before it even begins because we love it for the wrong reasons. Like, we love the idea of together. We love the idea of together, but the problem is, though, that honestly, we love the idea more than the reality of it. Uh, Bonhoeffer has a very true and piercing quote about this very idea. It should be on the screen behind me. He said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. We can love the idea of together, but maybe not the reality of it. And so that's that's the question. Do you love the idea of together more than the reality of it? Do you love your dream of Christian community more than the people in the community itself? If we love our dreams more than the people, we don't love the people, and we end up missing out on Jesus' vision for the church altogether. So we do. Um, about nine years ago, uh, Elizabeth and I and Tucker, who was a year and a half old at the time, went on this trip to Maui, okay? And I had been wanting to go to Maui, like, my whole life. I was just a young buck then. I was like 25 or 20-something, I don't know. And uh, we, right before we left, Liz found out that we were pregnant with Eden. And she doesn't just get morning sickness. She gets, like, all day, all the time sickness. And so she was, like, miserable. She hated Maui, okay? But you, you love it. But that experience was just terrible uh, to her. Anyways, I was so pumped. I've been wanting to go to Maui, just a tropical place in general my whole life. And I had seen so many photos of tropical places my entire life. You know, like the white sandy beaches, the crystal clear water, you know what I mean? Like just pineapples falling all over the place, whatever it is. Like I just had this amazing, you know, picture of what Maui was going to be like. And so we get there and of course we go to the beach right away and we go to the beach and the sand wasn't very white. Definitely not as white as I was hoping it would be. There was like trash on the ground and stuff in different places. Uh, It wasn't just, you know, like you would hurt your foot on the sand at points, there'd be rocks or whatever. Uh, the water was definitely not see-through where I was. You know, and immediately, Maui was such a letdown. I was immediately like, man, this is not what I thought it was going to be. You know, Liz is sick. I got this year-and-a-half-year-old toddler that I'm just going to be in the pool with the whole time now. Like, this, the beach doesn't look like uh, the way it's supposed to look. What had happened is this. I had my dream of Maui, and, and, and I hated my experience because it wasn't fulfilling my dream. But all along, I had a vision of Maui that wasn't really Maui, and therefore I couldn't really love my experience of Maui in and of itself. I couldn't love Maui, I didn't love Maui, I loved my vision of what I wanted Maui to be. 
And starting on day two and following, I kind of realized that and started to see the beauty of Maui. I started to see how awesome it really was. But I let my vision of what I wanted to be get in the way, and I never actually loved Maui for what it was. You guys, if we catch Jesus' vision for the church, that it's not simply existing for me, but actually I exist for you, and ultimately I exist for Jesus, then we would be such a transcendent sort of community here in Corvallis. I mean, think about it. In a society where everyone is out for themselves, to live for the sake of others, to live with others, that will create a transcendent community. And I use the word transcendent because the word transcendent means something that's above the range of normal, merely physical human experience. That's what it means to be transcendent. Something that's above and beyond what's normal in our experience. See, Jesus has a dream for his community. It begins with seeing that he is not just your Lord and Savior. He's called you and many others into a life together. And his vision is to create a holy, set-apart, dare I say, a transcendent community. So what kills this community? We see it in verse 10. What kills it? It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, which Cephas is Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did, not, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I love that. He just like, had such an effect on people. He's like, I don't know. Maybe I baptized more people. I don't know. Um, it's just funny. Yeah. Uh, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We'll talk about more of that next week. But here, Paul's bringing up the most prominent issue in this church. They're divided. Literally, the word means split or torn apart like fabric or like a fishing net. So it's something that needs to be mended. It's broken. It needs to be put back together. That's what this whole idea is. And so the issue, guys, wasn't merely division. If, if, like the ESV uses the word division. It falls really short of what it's talking about. Because it's not that they're divided over doctrine, they weren't divided over beliefs. What's happening here is a power struggle. People are claiming different people as if they have the corner on Christianity. And it's creating these power struggles, these splits. It's not just theological controversy. This is really serious. And so, so serious that Paul appeals to them. It says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, in the name of Jesus, I appeal to you. That, that, what that means is this. He's appealing to them and reminding them of Jesus' character and reputation. He's saying, in the name of Jesus, remember his character, remember his reputation? Remember how he was really self-giving? Remember how he was sacrificial in love? Remember how he was the greatest one, yet the most humble? Remember he was the one who sacrificed for others, even at the cost of his own life? He says, I appeal to you in Jesus' name, remember him? Remember how he used to be? Remember who he is right now? Do you remember who he'll always be? Remember him? I appeal to you in his name. Why is he doing this? He's calling to mind the character and reputation of Jesus because the church is taught to be Christ's body. We're Christ's body. His physical manifestation in the world. And so if there are splits, if there are power plays that cause splitting, and sticking with the metaphor, these power plays are tearing apart the very limbs of Christ. 
That, that's pretty serious. Well, how are they doing this? It says in verse 12, people are saying, well, I follow Paul. I follow Paulos. I follow Peter. Or I follow Christ. See, the problem isn't so much that these various people in the church have been influenced by different godly Christian leaders. That's not the problem. It's not that Peter's had a major influence on people. The problem is that they were using their favorite people, these Christian leaders and influencers, to create divisive tribes. They were using these people they, to, in order to create groups that would inform other people, I really have the corner on Christianity. I'm mature. And since you're not in this group, then you're not. These, these people were using the names of godly Christian leaders in, in order to create these subgroups to show who's in and who's out, who really knows, who really has the corner, who really has it together, and who doesn't. And so you would look out at the other crowd and go, maybe someday you'll get your act together and you'll come to see the way it really is. I, I follow Peter, Right? And they're doing this in order to perhaps gain prestige by claiming some link with these people, right? Some are using Paul or the brilliant order, Apollos, and some are even using the name of Jesus, right? Obviously, we're, we're like with Jesus. That's not the point. The point is that there were some people even who were looking out as others are going, I follow Peter, or I follow Apollos. They're like, you know what? I'm, I'm better than you. I just follow Jesus, you know? But in like sort of this like prideful sort of way, not like in this pure sort of way, but in like a, you know what, I'm just the Jesus person. You're obviously not. And it's creating these divisions. These are legit names, mind you. They're not listing out all these like heretics or something. These are all great, godly Christian people. And quite honestly, guys, uh, we're no different. And quite, it's probably worse than ever here in, in this generation when it comes to the same exact idea. We're not much different. There is something that is within many of us where we want to align ourselves with people, godly people, good groups and organizations, but we do so in order to like prove to the world and we, we, we take that person or that organization and we hold it out as this pride thing that says, I am the most correct. I am the most mature. You are not as mature as I am or I have the corner. We have the monopoly on Christ because we follow so-and-so. We do this all the time. Uh, you might claim certain Christian leaders or pastors, like, I don't know, Bob Goff or somebody, who's great, who's great. But you, you'll, you'll be like, I just, I'm more of the Bob Goff kind of guy. And since I'm more of the Bob Goff kind of guy, then anybody who's not really the Bob Goff kind of guy, you're a little too, like, heady knowledge type person. It's just about loving people, you know? Or you're like, no, I'm just a, a John Mark kind of guy. You know, I love Jeannie Allen. Right? Or Beth Moore, Tim Keller, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, because they're, you know, the really godly ones. You know, they're really more God-centered or something. You know, or there's, I, I'm just a Jen Wilkin or a Matt Chandler or Andy Stanley or, you know what, I'm not even a modern-day person. I dig into the Reformers, the Puritans, those are the people that I follow. And we take names, we take groups, we take organizations, we take, I don't know, we could take organizations here on campus ministries, churches, denominations, non-denominations, right? And we take them and we say, well, I am this, therefore, that makes me something. And what we've done is we take people, godly people, realize I didn't, I didn't list off for us any like heretical organizations. 
I didn't say that someone's in here saying, I follow Joel Steen or Oprah or like Rob Bell or something, because that's not the point of 1 Corinthians. They're following good, godly people, but they're using them to a means to another end, saying we have the corner. And they've taken Jesus and they've lowered him to a place and they've raised up a different person to be their identity, to be what they say gives them status, prestige, life, the monopoly. And so we're, we're begged the question this morning. I mean, do I claim someone or something in such a way that it's separating me? And to such a degree that it's causing me to feel better than someone else. I mean, if Christ is split up so that each split claims to have the monopoly on Jesus, how can anyone receive Jesus in his wholeness and his fullness? That's the point of Paul. It's missing the whole point together, and that's what Paul does next. He gets really rhetorical. He goes after not the Apollos people or the Peter people. He goes after his own people who are claiming him. And he goes after them, and he's saying, you can't be elevating me to the place of Jesus. I mean, Jesus went through stuff for you, not me. Right? He says, were, were you, was I crucified for you? I wasn't crucified for you. Wasn't Jesus crucified for you? When you were baptized, when you went under the water, did that happen in the name of me? Did that happen in the name of Paul? Well, no. And he gets at baptism because baptism is a point where we declare our allegiance to somebody. If we declare our allegiance to Jesus, then why are we declaring our allegiance after the fact in a greater way to some human person? And then he goes all the way to the point of showing how deeply distressed he is by all these people, their misplaced statements of allegiances, that they have no human, you know, that they, they have to, you know, follow these human leaders rather than Christ. And he gets to the point, he says, I am relieved. I am relieved that, that, that I didn't risk more Paul allegiances by baptizing more people. He, he's so distressed that he says he's glad he didn't baptize more people. That's crazy. Just to avoid more Paul allegiances. As I hope we see, I mean, this is like ugly, and it's not even logical. It's this whole point. Jesus died for me. I was baptized in the name of Jesus. No human leader has ever done or will ever do what Jesus did for me and what Jesus did for you. There's no substitution for him. Jesus is the ultimate, and hopefully anyone who is leading in the name of Jesus is simply leading us towards Jesus. They're pointing towards him and not themselves. And here's how we know, because if that leader fails, if that leader dies, if that leader moves on, does our heart keep going with the same people together into the future? Or are we merely following a human person? There's no substitution for Jesus, it's, it's illogical, Paul says, and it kills the transcendent community that Jesus is creating. I was thinking about it this way. I was recently flying into Portland, and as I was flying in, uh, there was like, you get this once in a while, there was like just massive cloud cover, like a pillow of clouds, you can't see anything beneath, and this gorgeous sunset, and I had the window seat where I could see the sunset, and it was awesome. And I'm flying in, just staring at this gorgeous sunset, and then all of a sudden you get to the clouds, and you get into the clouds, it just goes dark, right? You can't see a thing. And then I finally got beneath the cloud level, and it opened up, and it was just dark in Portland. But it was like beautiful in like an Oregonian kind of way, you know? It was still gorgeous. You know, it was raining, it was dark, it was cold, you know, it was wet. But you're like, it's green, you know? It's pretty. <laughs> uh, 
And I just couldn't help but think. I was like, man, I just saw the most amazing sunset because I was above the cloud line. And everyone else down here, they're looking around like, it's beautiful, it's green, whatever. They didn't see that. The sun sets every day, if you didn't know. Right? It's always there. We just often don't get to see it as Oregonians. Right? Not every night, at least. I got to see something beautiful that evening that a lot of people didn't get to see because I was above the cloud line. Guys, what I'm trying to say is Jesus is the most spectacular sunset. He's the ultimate, he is the highest. And so many of us, because we just claim a human person or an organization as our like, identity, we, we, we live beneath the clouds. And we think what we got going on is pretty good. So my question is, how can we get, break through the clouds? How can we have this transcendent community birth? We see in verses four through nine. It says this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the way you lived in order to earn your salvation, that in every way you enriched yourselves in all speech and all knowledge so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for Jesus Christ to come for you. Until then, you will sustain yourselves to that day, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. You are faithful and others are called by you to be in fellowship with you. It's pretty powerful stuff, right? Hopefully that sounded wrong, okay? If you weren't reading along, hopefully you're like, that sounded weird. If you were reading along, hopefully you know, like I'm trying to do something here to show you what Paul's doing. He's kind of unlocking how this whole transcendent community happens. Because look at what he does. He says, I give thanks to God for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given to you. You didn't achieve anything. It was given. You're a receiver. That in every way, you were enriched. It's passive. God enriched you. In all speech, all knowledge. Why? So that you're not lacking any gift. Waiting for Jesus to come. What's going to happen? Who will sustain you to the end? Who? Jesus. He will sustain you to the end. You're not sustaining yourself. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning you're not guiltless now. We all got guilt. God is faithful. Who is faithful? God is faithful. By whom? By God, by him, you were called. Into the fellowship of whom? Into the fellowship of his son, Jesus. We're all called into Jesus, the center. He's the central figure. He's the magnet. He's the glue. We're called into fellowship with him, our Lord. Guys, look at the climax of these verses. We are called into fellowship, communion, relationship with Jesus. He's the glue. He's the magnet. He's the centerpiece. He's the entree, he's the heart, he's the soul, he's the ultimate, he's central, he is the one holding all things together. He is the one. We are called to him, and if we're called to him and not to another person, or if others aren't just called to me or you, but we are called to Jesus, and that changes our relationship with other people, our relationship with, with, with others, because we aren't focused on ourselves or we aren't focused on someone else that we think makes us a better person, but we all have our eyes on Jesus. And when we, our eyes are on Jesus, that begins to change the way that we see everybody else. It puts everybody else in their proper place. We used to be below the clouds. It seems so great. All of a sudden, when we see the sunset, it doesn't compare. Like, no, we're called to him. He is, he is the one. And Paul goes for it. It might seem subtle at first, but the shift is massive. He goes off and he says, look at all that you have. He says, where did you get that? Where did you get that? And where did you get that? 
And how will you do that? You're receiving it. You're completely passive in this thing. You're, you're receiving. You're a receiver, not an achiever. And that changes everything. Um, my father-in-law, uh, he came down last weekend, and I have this, like, gross side yard. It has, like, all this overgrown bushes and things that I hate, and I just assume creatures are living in there and trash and who knows what's in there. And it's just been, like, you know, the pain in my side for five years. And he came down a week, a week ago, and he helped, uh, basically, did everything, pretty much, and ripped out all these bushes. He broke his back, not literally, metaphorically. He worked really hard, okay? And he, like, ripped out all the root systems and all this stuff. And we weren't able to get it all done. And so this last week on Thursday, he came down without me knowing. I was, like, at work, and I came home. And he had driven, like, four hours, like, finished all my mulch, like, fixed some faucets, some other things in the house, just ticked off a bunch of things on my to-do list. I came home. Liz told me about it. I was, like, blown away. Like, what an amazing man. That he would sacrifice his time, his, like, physical energy, like, all these things, to come down and do all these things for me. He, I mean, he was, he was amazing. He's amazing. What an, what an act of kindness, right? What an act of sacrifice. Could, could you imagine, though, if today you came over, and I, Jason, I take you outside, I'm looking at my, you're showing you my yard, and you're like, hey, this looks way better, because it looks better, for sure. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. Yeah, I worked so hard. Um, yeah, to take all this time off work, you know, and I do all these things, and I just start claiming all the stuff that I did as if I did it, right? And if you knew that my father-in-law did it, because I just told you, right, you would think I'm crazy. You would think I'm arrogant. It would be ugly, wouldn't it? Because I'm, it's not because it's, it's merely just wrong. It's, it's ugly because it's so not even true. It's, it's not logical for me to even say it that way. I'm not seeing clearly, am I? In the same way, that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look at all that you've received. So if you turn around and you start acting like you're achieving it all or that someone else is achieving it all instead of Jesus achieving it for you, then the playing field doesn't get leveled in the way that it's supposed to. If everything that we have is received and you know that you've received everything and someone else is doing things for you, then how in the world can we then turn around and claim that it's about us or it's about another person? As these verses, when we understand them for ourselves, they create us into the most humble people on the planet. And let me tell you, that'll be transcendent. Talk about being set apart. Because fundamentally, we are receivers, not achievers. And they, they cause us then to, to seek after the glory of Jesus, his name and his fame, and no one else. Because we see it all comes from him. Even that human leader that I adore if they're blessing me in any way that's good, it's because they're receiving that from Jesus. They're just another conduit. It puts everyone in the rightful place. I absolutely love A.W. Tozer's observation in how true and transcendent unity happens in community. And he sums it up uh, really well in, an, in a picture. Um, and it, it really gets at what verses 9 and 10 are saying. And this will be on the screen. That's one of my favorite quotes of his. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Jesus, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious 
and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. I mean, this is like the perfect picture of the introduction of 1 Corinthians. We are called together. And not just to have this passive, you know, idea of apathy and that for, therefore creates this lack of division. So we have the sense that we're unified, but we're really not. He's saying true Christian communities where we're all tuned to Christ, a different standard. Just like in a piano, you tune to the fork, Tozer saying. You tune to the fork. You don't tune to each other. If we all tune to each other, every key would sound the same. Wouldn't be that pretty. But if we all tune to somebody else, it sounds chaotic. But if we tune to Jesus, each one of us, if we're not looking to each other, we're all looking away to Christ. We're tuned to him. The church begins to play beautiful music in the world. It really does. When Jesus is central, when we have the gospel glasses on, we get launched out of the darkness, out of the rain, out of the clouds. And we shoot in the atmosphere and we see the beautiful sunset of Jesus and we display that sunset to the rest of the world. So what is the use of church for you? Who is it for? If our honest answer isn't Jesus first, then we will get everything else wrong. And we will look like a community that's just like everybody else. But when we see that the church is first and foremost for God, then we begin to become a powerful manifestation of Jesus' life in the world. Let's all stand together as we go into a time of response. Um, we're going to take communion together uh, as the first Sunday of this month. Andy, one of our elders, is going to come and lead us here after one song. Uh, but as our musicians come back up to lead us into the time of response, if you would pray with me in light of this word. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would get really big in our lives this morning. I pray that um, you might show us all the ways that we claim other people, organizations, um, how we, even in our day and age, we do these power play moves, dividing up your church. God, I pray that um, you would show us how ultimate you are. God, that that wouldn't just be an idea, but that would uh, honestly just explode in our hearts this morning, Lord Jesus. God, I pray as we come and we take communion together as your followers this morning, I pray that even in this, this act of remembering your self-giving love to us, God, that we would um, realize that this table unites us. It tunes us all to you, and I pray that we'd do that this morning, that we truly would be um, like that piano in the world, God, playing beautiful music for your glory. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.